0: Scott, thank you for hosting it and welcome everybody. Um, Topic tonight is why does the national debt grow and when is it excessive? Uh, We often hear about the sustainability of of government debt or what I'll call public debt. Sovereign debt is sometimes the word for it. Um, I in uh, economics have long specialized just in this topic. Um, I don't talk about it often because it's somewhat technical to a general audience, but I thought I would try to simplify it for you tonight. But just for those of you who want to dig more deeply into this, in in 2017, and I think Scott has the link to this, I uh, published a book called The Political Economy of Public Debt, subtitled Three Centuries of Theory and Evidence. And the fifth and last chapter of that book is titled The Limits of Public Debt. And that is really uh, what'm I'm, I'm trying to uh, gonna focus on tonight. So in other words, having gone through the theory and history of government borrowing, basically why does it borrow? when does it borrow too much, when does it and why does it default sometimes. Um, the book goes through the, theory, the both the theory and the history, mostly of the United States and Britain where the longest histories exist, but also um, theories about what causes it and and theories about the limits of public debt, namely what, what are the upper thresholds and what happens when they're met? How do you measure them? Are there any objective metrics? Uh, now, but let me back off, and I know this is a more general audience, so I don't want to be overly technical here, and I actually want to add some value by simplifying as best I can this topic in the papers, in the, in the, in the headlines recently, of course, the most um, relevance here is the, quote, debt ceiling. And and I can talk about that later, about the, the issue, though, of the U.S. debt now is public debt, federal debt at the federal level. There's also state and local borrowing. But the U.S. federal government has issued debt to the tune of about $32 trillion now. And it's risen enormously in the last 20 years or so, but especially since the 2008 financial crises. And uh, so people are concerned about that. What is it? What does it mean? Where does it come from? Is this a problem? Uh, they often think of an analogy to the household. Well, if the household borrows too much money, or a business, if a business borrows too much money, um, and there is a thing called debt service, you have to re- repay the principal and interest. And uh, depending on what the interest rate is, obviously, there's an interest expense cost involved. Uh, it can be difficult to have sufficient resources to repay or service the debt, even if it's not necessary to, to repay it in its entirety. Just the idea of servicing debt if you have a credit card or a mortgage you know what this means just keeping up the payments so to speak Uh, obviously at some point your income is insufficient or the collateral you've offered is insufficient and you can default you can either stop paying or in all in uh, principal interest or only say partially pay so the question is is there an analogy to the public household if you will are governments in the same position Uh, as a household would be, in which case the metrics would be similar. We'd relate uh, debt, not just to, to income, but also to assets. You've got to remember always to do this. You can't just say out of the blue, someone owes X amounts, trouble ahead. You always have to relate it to something. So if I say Joe Schmo, you know, owes $3 million and and Sally owes 3,000, it sounds like Sally's in a better position, but if Joe Schmo is a multimillionaire, then 3 million is nothing. And if Sally is jobless and income less, she can't even repay the 3,000. So you always have to relate these um, measures of indebtedness of what you owe to some other measure. Uh, We can leave aside for a moment, and maybe I'll leave it to the Q&A, something called modern monetary theory a very kind of Keynesian brazen approach to public finance today where it says that the government can basically borrow without limit and it can print money without limit, without limit meaning without any deleterious consequences, without either interest rates going up or inflation rates going up. So that is not my primary concern tonight. I actually devoted a clubhouse to that April 27th, uh, what I called the insanity of modern monetary theory. So you can go look at that for background, but it adds related to today's topic to the extent that they argue that none of this is a concern at all. Uh, Government can always print its way out of indebtedness. Now, just to go back to the basics, and as usual, I'll go on for maybe, I'm looking at the clock here, no longer than 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and then leave the balance half hour to questions. First of all, terminology, people often confuse deficits with debt. Tonight's topic is debt. Now, the, de- the the relationship is the following. A deficit, a budget deficit, is an, uh, a flow concept. Uh, over time, say typically a calendar year, we're measuring what is the government's revenues, those are typically taxes, versus its spending, its outlays. And if it's spending more than it's taking in in taxes, that's a deficit. It's a budget uh, imbalance, but it's a deficit. The opposite, of course, would be a surplus, If the government's revenues are coming in higher than its spending, that's a surplus. But a deficit is spending more than revenues. Now, how do they spend if they don't have sufficient revenues? How do they spend the full amount? Well, they borrow the difference, just as you would in a household. If your spending exceeds your income, you uh, borrow uh, the difference. So so the debt itself is an accumulation over time of deficits. It's not a flow concept, but what I call a stock concept meaning at any point in time you can, can take a picture and ask you know what is my credit card balance what is the national debt what, what is the number how much do we owe but you see that it's come from past net borrowing and i say net borrowing because of course if you have a surplus you can devote the surplus to repaying and reducing your debt okay so the the idea of the national debt itself where it comes from it comes from the government borrowing where it cannot fully tax the spending. Now that alone should tell you that there's some kind of root cause for budget deficits and therefore for national debts. Now the first obvious one and the most famous historically, if you know, is wartime. Wartime where the spending goes up enormously all at once and there is a reluctance, understandable reluctance on the part of the government to tax people to the max to pay for the full amount. Why? Well, one uh, one thing it does is it undermines, undermines the economy, which is needed to finance war expenditures, but also undermines morale. And there's just a lot of uh, tax avoidance that even during wartime that occurs. And also the idea that wars are supposed to be, or traditionally had been kind of short and over with after three or four years. And then in the post-war period, you use surpluses to repay the debt. Um, so that is can be one cause of deficits where where you wouldn't necessarily want to meet it with a tax hike when there's so much turmoil going on. Now, what about in non uh, wartime settings? And by the way, suppose you could say, listen, here's debt is warrant in the case of war where we face an existential threat. Uh, It's okay to borrow for that purpose, uh, to preserve the the sovereignty of the country. Uh, I'm just laying out reasons why governments uh, have borrowed in the past and why it might be legitimate. Not all wars are legitimate, uh, nor are they short. So that's a problem if you have forever wars. Another obvious one is recessions. Suppose the business cycle is steady. The growth rate of the economy is solid. Everything's going fine. There's not a lot of high unemployment the government budget is balanced you know the revenues equal the expenditures but then a recession occurs and for we'll set aside the reason why it might occur but the 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 minute a recession occurs you start getting a fall off in revenues companies are not doing as well, their sales go down, their production goes down, they're less able to pay taxes. So the tax revenues of the government will go down and not necessarily the spending at the same time, right? So a deficit occurs in this case, cyclically, call it a cyclical business cycle deficit. And, and similarly, you can see why it might be argued, well, don't rush and raise tax rates to fill the gap. Because you're only going to make the economy worse. Why raise tax rates during a recession? It's the worst possible thing. Companies are already challenged. Uh, so so let it ride, um, and and let a deficit occur. Say it's not a huge thing necessarily during a recession. And then when the recovery occurs, here's the key: you'd have to have recoveries and expansions associated with surpluses, again to to go back and and repay some of the debt that was incurred during a recession. Now. So those are two main reasons why you could have deficits, but notice they wouldn't necessarily be chronic deficit spending. Chronic in the sense of year in and year out, there's a budget deficit. Not so in the two cases I just named, so long as they're short wars and reasonably short recessions. Well, that is not what we have going on in the major welfare states of the world today. What we have is chronic deficit spending. What we have is the rarity is to have a budget surplus or budget balance the last time the u.s federal government had a budget surplus was in the four years running at the turn of the century so 99 uh, it was 98 i think 99 2000 and 2001 so the budget surpluses weren't that large but they did exist and believe it or not at the time certain economists were actually debating what to do when the national debt was radically reduced, maybe even to zero. That's how optimistic their forecasts were, how ridiculous, of course, but also how optimistic their forecasts were. They actually worried about there being too little government debt, too few government securities out there. We went completely the other way, of course, in the last 20 years, starting with Y2K and then nine eleven, and then the 2008-2009 financial crisis, and then COVID. So we've had the COVID lockdowns, which enormously increased spending and budget deficits. So we've had three or four waves of massive deficit spending uh, in these episodes. But even in between those episodes, we didn't see budget balance. We didn't see surplus. So there's something going on with a chronic deficit spending, and therefore in a chronic accumulation of debt. And here, I'll just quickly throw in some numbers to give you perspective. The debt relative to GDP, I mentioned before, you should never look at any kind of debt out of context. You always must relate it to something. And GDP is a kind of crude, rough measure of national income. So it's kind of similar to the idea of saying, how much is your credit card or mortgage you know, relative to your income or relative to the value of, their, of your house? Now, in the US, the current ratio of U.S. federal debt, which I said before was $32 trillion, to GDP is something like 130%. And here's why this is relevant. It was only 35% in 1975. It's gone through fluctuations over time, but it's really in the last 20 years or so that it's gone ever upward. So as I said, it's about 129, 130% now, but it was below 100% um, five years ago, and it was below 80%. Ten years ago. So the trend is deteriorating badly in terms of not only the debt rising, but the debt rising relative to national income. And if you wanted to look at the top of the list in nations, and I'm not really doing an international comparison today, but Japan of the major countries has the highest ratio. It is 265 percent of GDP. So think of that. The national debt in Japan is two and a half times the size of the economy. And and interestingly, yet it hasn't defaulted on its debt. So so this issue of debt burden, uh, the debt, uh, how how uh, dangerous a debt can be as as vis-a-vis default is is not a one-for-one correspondence. And I'll explain why that's the case. On the other hand, there's been hundreds since eighteen hundred studies have been done of this over 300 debt defaults of major countries over the last 200 years. So it isn't as if there isn't a history of governments defaulting, and defaulting not just by uh, not paying principal and interest or only partially doing so, but by resorting to the printing presses, what I call indirect or implicit default. An explicit default would be not paying interest in principal. An implicit, more kind of hidden, nefarious default is, we'll just pay the lenders back In cheaper money. Uh, Just run the printing presses and pay them back that way in debased money. That is a much more uh, hidden, uh, illusory type of uh, default. And now imagine here's where the break comes between the household analogy and the public household analogy. If you had a printing press, if you were able to engage in counterfeiting and met your debts that way, it would be equivalent to what the governments are doing since they've been off the gold standard. And they've been off the gold standard since 1971. And and so that is also contributing to a rise in what I call public leverage or debt to GDP ratios. It's just easier to resort to non-tax methods of financing the government, especially when the effects of doing so aren't directly attributed to the government. So for example, instead of taxing If they borrow and interest rates go up, it isn't obvious to people why interest rates are going up only because of government. They might blame any lender in town. They will blame bankers. And there's a long history of finance playing the the scapegoat role in all sorts of things. Usury, the hatred of usury, the hatred of charging interest per se, let alone charging high interest. So it's, it's in that regard, a very clever method for government to finance itself if it can get away with it. And of course, inflation is even more insidious. This is issuing money in excess of the demand for money, lowering the value of money, lowering the purchasing power of money. That's what inflation is. And that is even less visible. Uh, I I shouldn't say it's less visible. It's, It's more difficult for the general public to trace that to the perpetrator, which is the monopoly issuer of money, the central bank. And it shows up in prices. And of course, in that case, any price setter, is seen as the culprit uh, at the gas station, at the grocery store, elsewhere. So the three methods of financing government taxes, borrowing, printing money you could see why, from an electoral standpoint, from a purely democratic theory standpoint, uh, the politicians in office, those seeking re election, and those seeking election would want to avoid taxes as much as possible. And so Part of the theme we're seeing, I believe, is, is what I call unrestrained democracy leading to fiscal profligacy. Unrestrained democracy leading to fiscal profligacy. By unrestrained democracy, I mean to majority vote, any program is put up for a vote, proposed, and people will be for it. They don't see any immediate cost to themselves for voting for more and more spending on more and more programs in more and more departments. So unrestrained by say a constitutional limit on the proper functions of government. If there's no constitutional limit on the proper functions of government, then it's spending can go completely out of control. Now, as it does, the question becomes, well, how do we finance it? And it's just not electorally successful to say, well, we're gonna raise taxes because uh, there are tax revolts, there's tax resistance, so so the implicit bias that we see is a bias toward more spending but less taxing or and and the democrats are of course known for advocating more spending and the republicans are known for saying less taxes so that is just a built-in bias if you if you can see it uh, toward deficit spending and therefore a bias toward chronic debt accumulation <clears throat> so part of the problem here is actually the Unlimited government and the electoral motivations associated with that. Now, I want to say something uh, about tax, even though we're on debt, a concept called taxable capacity. Some cultures are more willing to pay taxes than others. This is demonstrable. You can find metrics on this. And it's a very interesting phenomenon because, on the one hand, uh, America, which has this more independent uh, or had until uh, more recent decades, this kind of more independent spirit, uh, a pride in the money people earn, uh, resistance to paying taxes. The country itself was built uh, largely on tax revolts, if you know, throwing tea into the harbor in Boston. And and so interestingly, uh, even though the government grows, and even though that's demanded electorally and delivered by politicians, there is not a corresponding desire to pay the taxes uh, that would fully finance this. Now, in other cultures in Europe and elsewhere, there is this greater willingness to say, well, I owe my life and my income to the state. If they require more taxes, I'll pay them. And so I hope you can see that quite apart from the issue of the spending, the issue of how it's financed uh, can be very different in very different countries based on Taxable capacity, uh, basically the willingness of the electorate to pay the taxes, and in the United States has been well established in something called Hauser's Law. H e u s e r. Hauser analyzed over time a very interesting phenomenon that the federal government only takes about twenty percent of GDP in tax revenues over long stretches of time. And in other words, if you plotted this, it's a it's a basically a flat horizontal line. And that might be surprising to some people because you think, well, if they raise taxes, why can't they take, say, 25% of national income or 30% of national income? Well, because there's this resistance to paying higher taxes. And imagine you raise the tax rates. The tax rates say from, well, we'll charge 50%. No, we're going to raise taxes on the rich to 60, 70, 80%, if you know what the graduated income tax schedules are. Well, the higher those rates are, the more motivation there is to lobby for tax loopholes and exemptions and credits. And as a result, it brings down the amount of taxes that are brought in. Even when you lower tax rates enormously and get rid of loopholes, still Hauser finds you the government can only take something like 20 percent of uh, uh, GDP. It's higher in other countries. Well, what does this mean? It it means that if spending is 20% of GDP, then there's going to be a balanced budget, right? you got 20% of GDP being spent, 20% of GDP coming in as tax revenues, no problem. But if those tax revenues are fixed at, say, 20%, then any spending above that is going to lead to uh, budget deficits and it's going to lead to chronic budget deficits. And that is exactly what we've seen, especially over the last 20 years, but really over the last 50 years since they went off the gold standard, there's been an increased uh, and an expansion of the welfare state, an expansion of spending on redistribution of wealth, not on the production of wealth. There's also, of course, been problems of prolonged costly losing wars like Vietnam, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. So those have also been costly, but the real underlying cause of chronic deficit spending is the gargantuan growing and ever-growing U.S. welfare state. So as long as people want that and feel it's moral and feel that the government should do it regardless, you're going to have this problem. And, and, and it's, it's also interesting from the tax side to see that um, the shift in who pays the taxes has gone to a smaller and smaller share of taxpayers. Put another way, half the taxpayer, half the uh, electorate in this country doesn't pay any federal income tax at all. They've just been exempted from it by the code. The whole soak the rich uh, mentality has led to the government trying to tax only the top 10% or mainly the top 10%, say the top 20% in income. And so there's a, a, a way skewed disproportionate attempt to tax a smaller fraction of the population, again, because if they're the minority, they can't vote their way out of it. They can't, they're going to be outvoted by those who don't face a tax burden. So that is another chronic problem associated with this whole setup uh what else do i have here that's worth mentioning um the the idea of interest expense is very interesting again a a bit of a technical topic maybe a bit a bit boring but now think of this you're borrowing money and if your tax rate is low all else uh, not tax rate interest rate if the interest rate you're paying is low all else equal you can borrow more all else equal meaning all else equal your income your your assets your collateral But as that interest rate rises, it's applied to the principal. Your interest expense is going to become a bigger part of your budget. And unless you pay that, uh, you're going to default. So it becomes a non-discretionary item. It becomes a very important item as long as you want to maintain your credit. Uh, And the same is true in government public finance. Uh, A government does have to worry, even a government off the gold standard, which can print money without limit, has to worry about whether the interest rate is exorbitant or not. And, and here we have a kind of pressure. It's what's called in the, in the literature financial repression, where government policy as much as possible tries to depress the interest rate. Um, now, on the surface, they'll say the Federal Reserve does this. It's sometimes called the zero interest rate policy or something close to zero interest rates. And the argument they'll give is we're just trying to stimulate the economy. We're just trying to get the economy going. But really in today's public finance world, what they're really doing is trying to make the welfare state seem affordable. They're trying to help the government borrow affordably, cheaply by keeping interest rates low. And um, the danger in this, of course, is if it gets out of hand, if they start inflating and if interest rates start rising because lenders demand higher interest rates to offset the debasement of money, then that interest expense figure in the budget is going to uh, skyrocket. It's going to start. It's going to become a, a it already is today in the U.S., but it's going to become a big line item in the budget itself. And this is where. This is where debts really become dangerous, where you're basically borrowing to pay the interest on the money you've already borrowed. That is typically called a debt trap. That is usually a precursor of a spiral downward into complete chaos because uh, the fiscal the fiscal order is so out of order. And now, the interestingly, interest rates have risen more recently, but I, to be fair, they're not as high as they were. In the late 70s, in the late 70s, the U.S. bond yield was up to 14 15%. What is it today? It's about 4 or 5%. So it's higher than it had been a couple of years ago. But this is going to be an issue also, and it's increasingly going to be an issue. I think the last estimate I saw is by 2035, that's only about a dozen years from now, interest on the federal debt will exceed all spending on the military. So to those of us who think, uh, you know, basic government functions like the military and the courts and the police are essential, if you get to the point where interest on the debt itself uh, has become so large that it's bigger than those items, you have a problem. Now, I'll just end with uh, how bad debts usually end, which is the issue of defaulting and uh, what it means to default. Now, to those who hold, understand this now. To those who hold government securities, treasury bonds, treasury note, treasury bills—those are the concrete uh, manifestations of the debt. They're assets to those people, right? That your banks will hold those. They're, they might be in some of your mutual funds. They might be in some of your pension funds. They're bonds, uh, and just like corporate bonds, they're an asset, and they're paying you interest, of course. And you can buy and sell these things. So the first thing to recognize is for those who look at only one side of the ledger to simply say, well, why not just default? Why doesn't the Treasury just default on its debt? Understand that the corresponding damage would be anyone holding that debt loses assets, uh, loses value, and then themselves can go bankrupt because the assets have been basically wiped away. But but. And really, what's going to happen in a case like the United States where, now here's the key point, they're, they're borrowing money in their own currency. They're borrowing money in their own currency. So the U.S. government borrows in dollars and simultaneously has a monopoly central bank that issues those dollars. What that means is there isn't necessarily going to be and there shouldn't really be any technical explicit default on the debt in the sense of not paying principal and interest. Um, what, What they will do and what they have been doing is defaulting implicitly by issuing money of lesser and lesser value. That is really what's happening. But on the other hand, this displacement of government spending on things that might otherwise be productive, but are really just redistributing wealth instead of producing it and then paying interest expense, you should understand why this would cause a stagnating economy. It isn't just the taxes that are the burden. The real burden of government is the deflection of resources, the diversion of resources, the the redistribution of resources, and whether they finance their spending by taxing or borrowing or printing money, The, the real burden is what the government is spending what it's diverting. And, and these, these three methods have their various ways of hurting the economy, taxing, borrowing, and printing. And my focus tonight is on borrowing, of course, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the real burden is the spending. And last time I checked at every level, state, local, and federal government in the US, they're spending something like 50% of GDP. Whereas 100 years ago, well, let me go further back, before World War One, it was something like 5% so and that's true in europe even more so 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 over the past century with the gargantuan growth and the warfare welfare state we have seen this massive increase in diversion of income the basically division of national income you cannot as i long said this is just the math of it you cannot multiply wealth by dividing it and you certainly and that's what redistribution of wealth is it's the division of wealth not the production of wealth, not the multiplication of wealth, and unfortunately, the the, the capacity to borrow uh, enormously increases the government's ability to do this. Um, so I'll leave it at that. There's many other things to cover, but I'll leave it at that. It's roughly at the 30-minute mark. I'll take questions and comments. Thanks, Scott.
1: Great. Thank you. Good presentation. Uh, feel free to raise your hand if you have questions. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start with one. Um, you know, I remember Greece was going through something like 10 or 15 years ago, their their debt was over 100% and they, you know, the, the, the whole EU got back and created an austerity program for them, but that seemed to create, you know, economic troubles too. Is, is that the type of thing we need to be looking at?
0: Well, there's two, uh, that's a good question. And there's two aspects of that event, which are worth stressing and which I only hinted at. One of the reasons Greece uh, defaulted, and they did default, it's, it's interesting, not only did they borrow too much, not only did the Greek government borrow too much, and not only was it a gargantuan redistributive welfare state, but, but here's the key of it did not borrow in its own currency. Uh, it, it used to issue the drachma, and until the euro replaced it, you know, so that the 11 or so countries that originally dropped their currencies and went into the euro... Greece was one of them, and so now think of this: you're borrowing in uh, euros, but you don't alone issue euros. So, to the extent anyone in the euro system overborrowed, they cannot, they could not call up their own central bank anymore and say, "Print up drachma." So uh, that was a uh, that was a clear cut case of uh, it's a combination of your fiscally profligate. And you don't have a central bank to turn to anymore. Now, in many ways, you can say it's a good thing that we got the euro because it displaced a dozen other uh, currencies. And now there was just this one currency, and it did limit the amount of borrowing that countries could do. It's similar in the U.S., by the way, to a state. So the state of Florida, for example, borrows, but the state of Florida does not have its own central bank where it can print money if it borrows too much. So there's a much greater pressure Uh, among the 50 states to have fiscal restraint uh, because they can't resort to the printing press. So it's a very good uh, kind of case study in that. Now, the other thing you mentioned, which is important to stress is what they call austerity programs. Now, austerity has a bad name and and possibly it should, the austere uh, fiscal uh, methods of how do you fix a country that's fiscally out of balance. Now, here's the problem. Typically when, and this happened in Greece, typically when the government is borrowing too much and, the, and people go in and they want to fix this, the first thing they come up with is raise taxes. They almost never start with restrain government spending or shrink the welfare state or get rid of this program or this department. And so it, it, it is true that some of the danger is to go in and only one side of the ledger and raise taxes because that's only gonna depress the economy further. It's only gonna undermine the ability to raise revenues and you just defeat your whole purpose. So studies have been shown and this eventually happened in Greece. They eventually turned things around. The way to do this is to go in and not raise taxes, but to slash government spending. And the main impediment to this theoretically is the Keynesians. John Maynard Keynes and his followers have long claimed that not only government spending, but government deficit spending is somehow a stimulus for an economy. It is not. It is not at all for the reasons I named. It's a diversion of wealth, not a multiplication of wealth. So there's there's very much resistance, not only for Keynesian reasons, but for, quote unquote, social justice reasons and, quote unquote, safety net reasons, for public officials to resist public spending cuts and restraints when there's fiscal Uh, chaos going on, but that is the remedy. That's the remedy that works. That's the remedy that brings countries out of it, shrinking government back into the revenue stance that leads to uh, balanced budgets and surpluses.
1: Great. Thank you for that. Uh, Let's go to Clark. Clark, thanks for joining.
2: Yes. uh, Thanks for having this. Thanks, Richard, for presenting. Um, I guess my question would be, you know, this is something that, you know, all the trillions that we keep piling on year after year, uh, I mean, it's hard to believe that when Reagan was president, which to me doesn't seem that long ago, and maybe neither to you, Richard, but I remember just being completely just dumbfounded by the fact that the, the debt went from $1 trillion to $2 trillion. He doubled it. Well, <laughs> we never had it so good. Now it's $31 and climbing, and of course, you know, unfunded liabilities is is I don't know over a hundred trillion dollars, and I I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is I, I would assume that that most professional economists know this that you know this is just a ticking time bomb whatever metaphor you want to use you know we're facing a fiscal cliff but why do so many Americans just don't seem to to care at all. About what should just be so obvious to everyone on the entire political spectrum—that's you know—we can't just keep piling more trillions on top of more trillions, and yet you know you talk to millennials and Zoomers, and and all they want to talk about is pronouns and you know trans trans individuals, and and I, I just scratch my head because I realize as a as a baby boomer, you know we've. We've contributed, uh, and I, I'm, you know, you're a baby boomer too, of course, Richard. But we've just we've contributed to this trillions and trillions upon trillions added to the debt, and yet, you know, the boomers, zoomers, excuse me, the, the zoomers and the millennials, it's almost like it's just some piece of, you know, just a, a statistic that has absolutely no relevance to their lives. How do we account for this, Richard?
0: Well, it's a really, it's a really very good question, and. Uh... I know from the literature the the phrase that both captures what you're talking about is something called fiscal illusion, and and the first part of fiscal illusion, which I'm sure all you you can recognize, is the idea of well, if we don't tax people but rather borrow, and and print money, it's a loser. They're not going to feel the pinch, so to speak. They're not going to uh, recognize that every time they increase government spending, well, it's gonna cost me out of my pocket. So that would be one thing. And that is precisely why these two methods, borrowing and printing money, is what, it's, it's the main reason they resort to this because they know that the electorate will not um, revolt. And, and now from a, from a libertarian objectors perspective, this is also a kind of a, uh, a paradox or a puzzle because when you think about it, suppose we oppose as we do the expansion of the welfare state. So the secondary question becomes um, tax or borrow. Well, from a liberty standpoint, you might say borrow because you don't have to lend to the government. It's a voluntary choice. And unlike taxes where you do have to pay the government taxes. So in in some respects, uh, you have this difficulty where in, in a context where you can't restrain government spending but you can say something about how it's financed. You can see why even from a libertarian perspective, there'd be a bias towards saying borrow. Now I am also a Hamiltonian. So I'm I'm for the view that the debt should be serviced and never reneged. There are libertarians who say just renege on the debt. Um, people had it coming to them. They wanted something for nothing. There's certain, some, certainly something true to that. Uh, they're lending uh, because they're lending voluntarily uh, default on them if necessary, They're the, they alone will suffer from it. There is that kind of argument, not only from the left, but from the libertarians. But, but, but Clark, I think the fundamental uh, answer to your question is they don't know it because they don't feel it. And they don't, the, the pinch, I mean, and they don't feel it because it's been very cleverly organized, I mean, the funding of the welfare state to minimize the pain to uh, the broad part of the population. So they really do feel like they're getting something for nothing. You do notice, by the way, when inflation goes up or when interest rates go up, you do get uh, public consternation and anger. But even then, it's somewhat diffused. They don't fully, as I said before, they can't fully attribute it to the politicians they've elected. They certainly, it's way over their head to think that a Federal Reserve banker did it. So it's a very it's a very disheartening setup at the same time a very clever setup ever since they went off the gold standard that 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 the government can not only expand in such this way but expand in a way that is not felt by the voting public it's a it's a uh it's a racket in a way it's certainly dishonest and immoral the way it's being done but people do vote for this oh you mentioned by the by the way you mentioned unfunded liabilities. I mentioned the U.S. national debt is now $32 trillion, but Clark is absolutely right. What's called the unfunded obligations of the U.S. government are things like Social Security and Medicare and unemployment insurance, and I would say even the promise to bail out banks considered too big to fail. These are called contingent liabilities where the debt has not been incurred yet. But the promises have been made in legislation, and it's true that they are very many multiples of the existing explicit debt. So if the public debt in securities form is $32 trillion, last estimate I had for all the other stuff is something like $150 trillion. So now can they default on that? Yes. In the future, they can basically, if necessary, reduce benefits. But of course, that would not be electorally successful. Right. No one comes out and says, well, we we need to restrain the national debt and borrowing and deficits. So we're going to cut granny's check uh, benefits check for Social Security. That'll never happen. So uh, that that is basically debt that unfunded liabilities will become future debt. So it's a leading indicator of what the national debt will become. And I believe the U.S. is heading toward Japan type levels so of uh, debt being something I like too Two hundred and fifty percent of GDP. Now, if, if you look at Japan, by the way, uh, Clark mentioned a ticking time bomb. A lot of times, these metaphors are used: you know, some kind of explosion, some kind of uh, implosion, you know, some kind of like dramatic, sensational crash. Interestingly, that has not been the case in Japan over the last thirty years. It's not like there's been a series of, you know, economic earthquakes. you know, a mass panic and stuff like that, even though they have borrowed all this money. Right. But what they have experienced is a steady, slow stagnation where the economy is basically grinding to a halt. And lots of studies have showed that when government debt levels get to something like 90 or 100 percent of GDP, that the aftermath is exactly that. It's not only that the welfare state is expanding and suffocating away, the vibrancy and the vitality of an economy but um, it's 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 borrowing is for redistributive purposes whereas the opposite would be a company borrowing for productive purposes so it's it's kind of like a cancer growing on an otherwise healthy body so that isn't as dramatic a story uh, to say that over time the u.s will just stagnate and there won't be any growth anymore or there might be a you know slight shrinkage over time. That's exactly exactly what Japan has experienced, and it and it can be very ugly. the 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 whole vitality of the place goes down. the The demographics go to aging instead of youngness. Um, uh, thankfully, the U.S. has some kind of immigration inflow of younger people. If it didn't, it would be going the route of Japan of Japan in terms of aging like that. And so. Um, that, those are just some of the dynamics it's not always going to be a ticking time bomb uh type of scenario it's this long prolonged stagnation of so so in other words not a heart attack but like a, can, a terminal cancer patient
1: great well we've got a treat uh atlas society founder david kelly is joining us welcome
3: great uh thank you scott and thanks richard uh Thanks, David. I should make sure my audio is uh, functioning. Your audio sounds great. All right, thanks. Um, I've got a question that kind of builds on what Clark was asking um, and you were talking about. And go go back to this analogy between you know personal finance and the and the, or the personal household and the public household. Yeah. You know, I, when I when i grew up was growing up my father didn't tell me a whole lot about money but i i got the message you know borrowing is for big things that will have some chance of retaining their value or supplying you with value over long term like a house or a car yeah and that you know businesses i know borrow for productive purposes um whereas if you're if you're borrowing just to finance your current um Lifestyle, you know, to pay uh, to pay the groceries, that you're in trouble, and I may be old, you know, just have come from a different generation, um, but I don't think that's all that unusual an attitude, and so that's and it's one reason why I look at the public debt, and I and I'm I'm scared as as Clark is. I mean, I think, oh my God, you know, we're just You know, we may not be heading for a crash, like you say. It may just be, you know, long-term stagnation, which now that you mentioned it, I think we may have started already. But anyway, yes. Yes. um, why is it that people can't make that uh, analogy? I mean, you you, you gave us a lot of reasons why it's hidden. Um, Yeah. And the Democratic on the other side, and the democratic impulse to just spend away because you don't pay for it all. But on the other hand, you know, what's happened, Americans still have some degree of independence and um, as reflected in, you know, the tax, you know, the limit, apparent limitation of the of taxes to 20%. But along yeah. with that sense of independence, usually it goes or traditionally went some sense of responsibility. Uh, and lots of people still have that, but it's not working. Um it, if you look at the what the welfare benefits people are paying for. I mean even even people of my generation, the baby boomers, I mean we're going through the welfare state like locus, um yeah. social security yeah. and Medicaid. Uh, yeah. And Medicare. yeah. And um you know, didn't these kids have parents who <laughs> lived through the Great Depression, like mine did, or uh, World War II, like mine yeah. did, and had some sense? I, I I'm, I'm, I'll stop there because that, that's, yeah. I've, I've made my question. I don't have an answer.
0: Well, this is a really good question, David. And there's, you don't know this because you don't specialize in it, but man, you have named many of the key principles in public finance that have been tossed over tossed overboard. But one of them is, you'll love this, there's something called the golden rule of public finance. And I wrote a chapter on this in a book at Cato called The Fiscal Cliff a couple of years ago. My contributory cha- uh, chapter was uh, the golden rule of public finance, uh, its erosion and possibility of its revival. Here's the golden rule of public finance. Um, don't borrow unless it's for productive purposes or legitimate government function purposes. Now, in our world, legitimate government function is police, courts, military. Even if we allow some infrastructure, okay, I'll allow that. Say roads, bridges, ports, and things like that, tunnels. Um, the the idea you have, David, is absolutely right. In a household context, you'd say, well, you you know, you can borrow for consumption, uh, the 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 vacation, the this or that, maybe even the car. But but you got to be careful, you know, you wouldn't borrow for food. Well, what's the point? The point is, unless it's, it, you borrow and buy a financially productive uh, economically productive asset, you have no means of repaying the debt. So that's the key. that that borrowing for productive purposes is sustainable. And borrowing for consumption purposes is not. And when you think when you conceptualize what the US government has become, and I and I documented this in the chapter, When government was small and doing legitimate functions of the kind I just named, its borrowing was not a burden at all because it was for productive purposes. I would even argue that the borrowing during World War II was, quote, productive in the sense that it uh, sustained the existential uh, status of the United States and got rid of a a tyrant. Uh, But even so, you could see that the redistributive welfare state is consumptive to the core. It's totally consumptive. It, there's, not, there's not only nothing productive about it, it's anti-productive because you're taking from Peter to pay Paul and Peter's incentives to produce go down. And Paul, the recipient sitting on the couch is less motivated to go work. So, it, so the redistribution itself isn't just a zero sum game, it's a negative sum game. Now, if on top of that, the government is borrowing to do that It's the golden rule of public finance is completely out the door. Now, one of the other things I did in that chapter, David, is I said, well, let me cleverly use the idea of the golden rule of public finance. One of them is the money supply should be the gold standard. And going off the gold standard permits them, of course, to spend, borrow and print without limit. So the golden rule of public finance went together with the gold standard. And we've lost that over the last 50 years as well. But I would go even deeper. And here's the moral issue that you and I often love talking about. Moral bankruptcy leads to financial bankruptcy. That's what we're saying. The moral bankruptcy going on today is the freeloading mentality, uh, the, the kind of the brazen, almost shameless idea of people owe me a living. Uh, I'm entitled to these welfare state uh, functions. Uh, It's unjust if I don't get these things. I don't have to work uh, if I don't want to. Even if I'm able, they can't even get able work in the legislation today, you know, what's called workfare. They can't even get that approved. And so if that's a moral defect, which it is, you can see why that would lead to the demand for a welfare state, which itself is redistributive. So, So all along the chain, you get the golden rule of public finance, when to borrow or not, out the door. The gold backing of the currency, out the door. But even the base ethic of shall I sustain myself and be an independent human being or shall I be a parasite upon society, uh, call it the golden rule of treating people fairly and treating people reciprocally, that's out the door as well. But I think they're all interrelated. Great, by the way, by uh, the, oh, Yeah, go ahead, David, I'm sorry.
3: No, I'm just, I just want to thank you and say that, that um, like, So many issues. I don't want to be proprietary about my discipline, but like so many issues, there is a philosophical, in this case, the moral issue involved.
0: Yes. Uh, So, yeah, Yeah. thanks. You're welcome. Thanks. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, ahead, Scott. No, go ahead, Scott.
1: I was just going to say, just to kind of add on to that. I, I mean, I remember being a young libertarian in the '90s, and there was a book called "Bankruptcy" 1995 about right. the debt crisis, right. and yeah, uh, and so you know. But now, you know, when you're arguing with these young socialists, the idea that there could just be stagnation and not a crash may not be enough to to get them to reconsider uh, right. their egalitarian goals.
0: That's a very good point, and I would say uh, not to be too grim about this in terms of forecasting where this is going to go. Yes, uh, if you can't, and I and I think in many ways you cannot sensationalize it and try to convince people by saying, you know, "Do something about it because there'll be a crash," uh, you know, "Do something about it because there'll be a crisis." You know, you know, people in a pragmatic, myopic setting will say, uh, well, wake me up when the crash comes. We'll figure it out. We'll try to figure it out then. They won't care. They won't do anything about it in the interim. I don't even think intergenerational appeals work. So you get these Republicans who get on the Senate floor and they say, our children, we're robbing our children's children and our grandchildren's children. Again, a myopic culture wouldn't give a damn about that. The whole point is they don't give a damn about future generations. And the whole attitude toward estate taxes that, you don't have a right to pass on your wealth to heirs. So there's there's this entire animus uh, toward who cares about future generations. So they're treated like a fiscal commons. You know the what's called the tragedy of the commons, where a, uh, a resource is dissipated because it's not privately maintained and run. That's the same thing in fiscal affairs. The commons here are future taxpayers. I mean that's what borrowing is. It's a it's a congressman today saying I'm not going to tax my constituents because they'll be thrown out of office. Instead, I'll I'll tax future con- constituents because uh, that's what debts are. They're just deferred taxes, the taxes that'll be paid in the future to pay the debts. But, but I agree with you. If you go the other route of saying you're going to stagnate the economy uh, by doing this, there's not going to be any you know, crash necessarily, but the whole system will just wind down and grind down into a no-growth maybe even a degrowth setting, they will applaud that. There is a certain group we know, the environmentalists and others, who are so fixated on myths about eating up the planet and dissipating the planet. They, they want less growth. They want to depopulate the planet. I'm not saying every environmentalist, but a lot of them are into depopulation. It's a very misanthropic attitude. So so to go at them from the fiscal side, you know, with the argument that you are um, – redistributing wealth and borrowing to do it to such an extent that you're grinding the u.s economy down into nothing they're gleeful about that they're they're saying this is great wonderful thank you very much at least something's going to restrain this awful capitalist uh, juggernaut so the the more we see that kind of woke attitude among the young and the old uh, yes, it appeals even to the idea of stagnating economy and a less vibrant economy won't deter them in the least. This, is a, You can see why well, this is a real philosophic problem. Great, um,
1: well, I want to get to Peggy with the time we have left.
4: Yeah, I have a question. Um, Welcome. Can you hear me?
0: We can, yes. Thanks, Peggy.
4: Okay, great. How much do you see this, I mean, Personally, I see the the corollary between the growth of government money exponentially into education, both lower and higher, um, a system that's completely divorced from accountability, that it just fosters the festering of all kinds of ideas that don't have to have any basis in reality. And that's what's raising our children. Yeah. Uh, That's what. You know they don't have to answer. They don't have a customer. We can't say no to them, and it's just growing and feeding this bizarre magical thinking.
0: I totally agree, and I've long said that uh, just as socialism fails because it entails public ownership of the means of production, this system you're talking about it fails because it's public ownership of the means of instruction. They're instructing and indoctrinating hordes of new generations of kids who have set aside just a moment the idea that they're taught goofy, magical thinking on public finance, you know, the Keynesian bullshit or the modern monetary theory. Many of them don't even know personal finance, uh, the, the kind of things David Kelly was referring to earlier. Personal finance used to be taught, believe it or not, in the public schools, you know, how to balance your checkbook, what an interest rate is, what a mortgage is and 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 there's uh, there if you just look up financial literacy, the the tra- the tragedy of financial literacy, the Federal Reserve of all people has a whole program trying to counteract financial illiteracy that um, the people are working at, not only is the government fiscally out of control and fiscally profligate, but the uh, younger generation is not being taught how to manage their own finances and uh, and so they become more dependent on this very government that's already growing out of control right that that well i need the government to take care of me because i didn't save enough money why didn't you save enough money i don't know what savings are what do you mean i don't know i don't know how savings interact with interest rates and and, and i don't know how to play the stock market and allocate my portfolio see all that is to the you're absolutely right peggy the schools are not only lobotomizing kids in terms of knowledge of history or american physics or uh, uh, civics i should say but on on this area we're talking about tonight of public finance and personal finance they're ignorant and then they grow up to become economists and financial journalists and federal reserve officials and it's just scary it's scary to see who's running
4: things. i was even more shocked when i'm in la usd um yeah. well, i live in that area and right. after during the shutdowns from covid yeah. The school union board put out this list of demands to reopen mm. the school that read like the communist Manu- manifesto.
2: Mm. Yeah. Things
4: that were completely unrelated to education, you know, free health care for all housing, you know, blah, 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 blah. It was blatant and people didn't bat an eye. I- I'm. It's, uh, it's depressing.
0: It certainly is, but thanks for the question, Peggy.
4: Yeah. Great. Well, um,
1: this has been a great topic. Richard, thank you so much for doing it. Uh, Thank you to everyone who participated. Uh, Coming up Wednesday, June 21st, the Atlas Society Asks will feature our CEO, Jennifer Grossman, uh, interviewing writer and speculator Doug Casey at 5 p.m. Eastern, then at 6.30 Eastern, (sighs) Back here on Clubhouse, uh, we're going to have David Kelly along with Senior Scholar uh, Stephen Hicks talking about the role of religion today. So uh, I think that's going to be a good one, maybe even a little controversial. So, um, but in the meantime, again, Richard, thank you for doing this. Thank, thank you, thank, you thank you, everyone Scott. participated, and uh, great. We'll uh, we'll catch you next week.
0: Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Scott.
1: Take care.